Topping talks. Hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Talks is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in IT security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. I gotta say he's quite handsome and brilliant. That's the joke you see. If you're an IT leader or a business owner, you can reach the team at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect, ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give 100% guarantee via the 30-day back money guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say today I'm interviewing Shane Pitzer, who is the Director of Channel Analysis for Wing Security. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Shane. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So winding the clock back a couple of years, you remember you were telling me you first joined the Navy. What first inspired you to join, and what was your main role? Uh, well, I grew up in the you know grew up in Houston area. I was outdoors a lot. Uh, we grew up in the suburbs, but we had a hunting lease about sixteen hundred acres. It was about I don't know seven or eight families. We all go up there ever since I was like two years old. So a lot of time outdoors. Um, <clears throat> did a lot of camping uh, around the state. You know, you know, um, in, in a little bit further places. But it really got me thinking about exploring the world more, seeing more cultures, learning more than just Texas, which is great. I love Texas, but I wanted to learn a lot more. And so I had the opportunity in high school. I tested really well. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunity to join the Navy and the nuclear power program. Oh, really? And so <clears throat> went into, you know, th- less than 30 days after high school, I got an opportunity to go ahead and join the Navy early. Um, so just, uh, Very cool. I didn't want to sit there until like next October. I wanted to go ahead and start my life. So yeah, less than 30 days after high school, I was already in Florida starting a career. So it was, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. What chose, what inspired you to go into the nuclear division of the company or not company of the uh, U.S. Navy? Yeah, it was the, I tested high and it was a better advancement, a better rank and something I could possibly use when I got out. I didn't, but yeah. it, was, <laughs> yeah. it was good that it was an option to do that. So and it was, there was a little bit of, um, not a prestige to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard to get into that group you know, to be invited in. And so that was a lot of it. So that was, uh, you know, it's a big goal for me to have. I didn't care for the program, to be honest. You know, right. I actually left the program a couple of years in, um, but I did enjoy the opportunity to go into that side of the military, but definitely enjoyed later transitioning to a conventional electrician versus a nuclear electrician, uh, which was better suited for me, my personality, and then the ships I wanted to be on. You know, I was able to get on a, a station on an aircraft carrier, USS America, versus being, you know, on a smaller nuclear frigate or, heaven forbid, being on a nuclear power submarine and being underwater for months and months at a time. Oh, my gosh. So it, it worked out really well to be on that ship, and I was stationed in uh, Norfolk, which is, uh, you know, near Virginia Beach, Virginia. Mm-hmm. So so what, what powers most of those giant aircraft carriers? Well, it, is it nuclear or is it? Uh, today it's nuclear power. Yeah. So they're... I don't think there's any nuclear power um, aircraft carriers left. They're all nuclear based. Uh, the USS America, in fact, was supposed to be upgraded to a nuclear core, mm-hmm. but because of different wars, it could never have enough time in the dry dock. Oh, to really? Get that upgrade. So it was one of the last uh, diesel fuel oil aircraft carriers left. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and the interesting uh, thing to, uh, to know on that was the reason why is the amount of fuel. Mm-hmm. We would have to, I mean, every two or three weeks, maybe, maybe a month, we would have to um, onboard about a million gallons of fuel. Oh, my gosh. So you're out to sea, another ship would pull up next to you, shoot lines over, and you'd take on regular diesel fuel oil and also JP5 for the, for the jets for their fuel and all that. And uh, I w- I'm going to give you a 
quick trivia question. What do you think the miles per gallon is for a U.S. <laughs> aircraft carrier? Oh, it's got to be. Diesel, not nuclear, but diesel. Oh, point zero 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 one. Four feet to the gallon. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so you think about a ship on a typical six-month deployment, we do about 25,000 miles because the ship really doesn't stop yeah. unless it's in port. Mm-hmm. Even when you're launching planes, you know, we talked, we talked a little bit about Maverick and uh, Top Gun. But when you're flying a plane, you have to generally you push the ship in the direction of the, of the wind. Mm-hmm. And you have to have wind coming across the deck to create the lift for the plane to take off. Mm-hmm. So it's always moving. So and I did two deployments and then plus different operations in Bosnia and Somalia and Haiti. Oh, wow. And so I think I, calcul- I tried to calculate it one day. I probably spent about two and a half years of the four years actually out to sea, like actually out floating around. Oh, wow. So you see some amazing sunsets and, some, you know, and sunrises. And it's good. It's a, it's, it's a, it, it was a very positive portion of my life. And at a time where I needed it, you know, yeah. to kind of grow up. And I was, you know, talking to some, you know, one of my children recently. and was talking about the military for me. Great, gave me an opportunity to leave the nest but be fully supported. Yeah, to be an individual, but know I had a job. Know I was going to have a place to sleep, have a place to eat. It wasn't going to be easy, mm-hmm. but I could write my own ticket there for whatever I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so that was exciting about that. A lot of people don't realize how much of a large myriad of opportunities there are in the military with so many different roles. I mean, there's a lot of support roles, all logistics, IT. Like it's almost near limitless in terms of the types of capabilities there are that could utilize a skill set. Absolutely. You know, from corpsmen to accountants to mechanics, to, I mean, literally any job you can almost think about in the civilian world, there's a counterpart. Oh, yeah. I mean, even on the ship, you know, people think, well, yeah, bowling alleys and we don't have bowling alleys. On oh, the ship. that's a myth. Okay. But we do have, you know, we have, you know, we have, you get your hair cut, right? You know, right. we have you know, the full dental facilities, full medical sur- you know, facilities if you need surgery. Um, you know, for movie, you know, movies, we would actually get movies the exact same time. Oh, really? That you would get them, like your blockbuster yeah. when they released. They would actually send them out. So I remember seeing like Forrest Gump. We're all sitting on the, no the shop floor watching Forrest Gump the same time as people were watching it in the movies, which is pretty cool. Oh, very cool. So we could we had a station for movies twenty four seven. Well, oh, wow. actually twenty three hours a day for one hour a day. They had to let the whole system cool down. Oh, really? And the other station was like sitcoms, mm-hmm. and then there was another one for like. Um, local news for the ship, like what was happening, what's the next port of call, you know, just information they needed to get out to the crew. Yeah. So it's amazing how much technology goes into those things too. I mean, I'm sure now it's all got to be thermonuclear or nuclear powered for those ships. Right. Yeah. And it's, everything's connected. So I did have the opportunity, I'll fast forward a little bit, but we can go back. But as far as the Navy, I did have an opportunity after I graduated college and this is after nine 11, mm-hmm. I'd already been out of the military for a while and I had an opportunity to go back in as an officer uh, and in crypto and intelligence, oh, and really? that'd be super fun. You'd yeah. know, you'd know all the things that are happening in the world. But then I started thinking, I'm going to be inside those little rooms that I used to go into on the ship. That's dark in the bottom, and you never come out. Yeah. And when you do come out, you don't have to tell everybody about this cool stuff that you know. <laughs> so you know, I was like, you know what? Maybe never mind on that. And so uh, you know, I think you know, being able, you know, back to your original question, why the Navy? It was just ex- exploration, it was yeah. excitement to see the world and do something I hadn't done before. I mean, they literally get to use some of the fastest, most advanced aircraft on the planet. Like the F-35 Lightning II is a technological marvel. To, it took hundreds of companies to come together to create. 
Well, internationally too, right? The supply yeah. chain. The whole reason for the F thirty five strike fighter was to help cut cost. And even though mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure we still, well, it's bigger <laughs> than, than the main hot project, but yes. <laughs> but different parts are coming from different you know, NATO countries, oh, yeah. and so it's all coming together, which does help for manufacturing. But that's definitely not my area of expertise. So someone listening is going to call me on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a really cool Venn diagram, not Venn diagram, but there's a really cool diagram where they show you the kind of breakdown of that thirty five of all the declassified stuff, and they show you, oh yeah. Here's a hundred different manufacturers, hundred different suppliers that went into this huge project. It's pretty amazing. It was able to all come together. Yeah. But for me, the cool thing when I was a kid was always the F-14, the Tomcat, I think it's called. That was the one you, you, you made models of and you played around with all the time. Yeah. yeah. Two big engines. Very, yeah. very big. You know, we had those and also the F-18s. And so oh, most yeah. pilots would much prefer an F-18, but the, F, you know, the F-14 is just iconic. And, you know, yeah. it's two, two pilots versus one. Yeah. Um, and a little little interesting note here um, with the ship. As I started the last deployment, we started seeing a shift of more marine detachments coming on board and air wings versus navy. Oh, really? So we'd, we'd have just as many navy pilots and jets. I mean, uh, marines as navy. Oh, really? So you know, and, and most people don't most people don't know that the marines were actually commissioned by the U.S. Navy to become their land force. Mm-hmm. So the navy and marines go very hand in hand, mm-hmm. generally. Um, so we get along, we make fun of each other, right. you know, like, you know, they eat crayons and you know, we're too dumb or fat or, or, yeah. you know, we're not up for the task, but, um, you know, always that camaraderie with them. So. Oh, absolutely. And of course you have the iconic A-10 Warthog that's still around the most American of all ideas. Let's build a gun. We built a gun. We're going to build a plane around the gun. <laughs> yeah. With the AC-130 gunship. Yeah, ex- you know, exactly. Angel of death. So. <laughs> Those things. And they're still, still hanging in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then what was the first role in IT, or what first got you interested in the IT after the Navy? You know, kind of the same thing. Again, I have definitely have ADD, and yeah. so I lose interest fast. And so, you know, when I did when I got the Navy, I was working as an electrician. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I, the first project I did was Lone Star Grand Prairie, the horse track. On a way. Yeah, so I was <laughs> actually one of the ones, that, the one that we ran the cables underneath the horse track mm-hmm. from the center lights in the middle. Yeah. But they had to be perfect. So we actually had to fill dirt in on top of the cables and then bring this machine in that would tamp it all down. And then we had yeah. to use this other device. It was nuclear-based, believe it or not. And it could test the, the penetration of the ground and make sure it was compact. Really? Because what had happened is we dig all these trenches in this uh, oval track. Mm-hmm. But if it would exactly perfect, I mean, to the T, the lights would create a micro shadow or a small shadow because it's not level. Yeah. And then the horses would try to jump it or it would throw them off. Really? So something like, like we're just laying cable here for... Or lights guys yeah no like it's completely different level of that but um but that i love that job because it got me into technology because i remember asking my supervisor at the time about how much money he made and how long he'd been working there and i was shocked how long he worked there and how little of money mm-hmm. i had respect for him but right. i was like wow that's not a lot to raise a family yep. and then i'm like i need to go to college and yeah. so plus i was working you know it's 105 degrees in texas with oh geez hard hat on and boots and building character building character <laughs> I, luckily i already had my character built you know from being raised in texas and being in the navy but um i knew i didn't want to do that forever mm-hmm. you know and, and so i matter of fact i actually just went down to devry you know, here at irving oh, yeah. and uh looked into their telecommunications program and um, computer uh, computer science and I think a month later, I was already signed up for the next, for the next course, you know, to start the next semester. Oh, cool. That was 97, 96, mm-hmm. right after I got out of the Navy. And then, you know, four years later, I had my degree from DeVry for um, telecommunications. Oh, very neat. And so that, you know, and, and mainly because technology is always changing. 
Electricity is oh, yeah. not going to change. I mean, yeah. it, a little bit, you know. Yeah. But, you know, technology, if you, you never can get comfortable because it's always going to be going to the next piece. Yep. And it's always going to evolve in yourself. And you have to force yourself to evolve before mm-hmm. or you're a blockbuster. Oh, or exactly. Or us or some of the signs we're yep. looking at in your office, right? And so I like that about constantly being able to reinvent myself or reinvent uh, my direction because it's not necessarily a positive thing. It's because if I don't, I get bored and I get yeah. stale. And then I'm not executing at the level that I feel I want to execute at. Mm-hmm. So for me, it gave me a path to kind of refocus and make sure I'm constantly refocused and not have to be in a job that may have been better for my career and family as far as stability, mm-hmm. but wouldn't have had my interest and my passion. Yeah. I was going to say a lot of people, it's one of those things where they wonder, you know, how many, how can you possibly work so many hours a week? Well, if you're passionate about something, if you really love what you do, it's not, it's not a burden. It's not, it doesn't fatigue the same. You're constantly learning, constantly, you have to take the tutorials. You have to take those, you know, extra, extra classes for IT. And just learn about, you know, what's the newest tech. Otherwise you're going to be left behind or just, just displaced. I would also say too, with technology and even in sales, it does give you some freedom. Oh yeah. Right. Because you're judged on an end result versus a time card. And so you may be working on a Sunday when you're traveling or getting a presentation together, but you may be taking the whole Wednesday off to go yep. your son to do a baseball event. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have that accountability that you have to be self-motivating and with sales mm-hmm. in particular, you know, you always have that carrot in front of you to go after, right? Oh, yeah. You always have that and the ability to do extra and do above, mm-hmm. but it takes work and you also constantly have to reinvent yourself to be, to stay, you know, to stay relevant. Absolutely. Especially in technology. If I'm going back talking about, firewalls and you know, endpoint security or something, you know, yep. or, you know, antivirus from back in the day when I worked at McAfee. I yeah. Have, not too many people will be listening to me right now. Exactly. <laughs> you got always adapt or die. I mean, how many logos have we lost in the past couple of years in IT security alone because they didn't keep their stuff together, they got breached, they couldn't recover, or they just didn't innovate and put the money back in the research and development. I mean, there's countless of those companies more and more. Yeah, and so you know, you're you know, you know, technology, and then also into sales. So when I was in um, going to DeVry, I needed a job besides bartending. I did some of that too, and waiting tables, which is always a, a you know a, a good option for you know to have that flexible schedule. But I started working in Computer City. Oh, really? Over off of um, was it's over in Irving. Is, I, can't, I can't remember the cross street now. I've moved away from Dallas a little bit ago, so I can't remember the exact uh, location. But it was over in Irving, and uh, I just sold a bunch of computers was back in the day when you're selling Sony's and HP's oh, yeah. and you know, you're, you know, 16 gigabit of Ram, you know, I mean, 16 was a lot, you know, yeah. actually you're at megabits back then and your hard drive oh, was wow. like one gig. And <laughs> <clears throat> I remember really getting into the, the computers and the, and even though I'd never owned one before, I didn't, I didn't grow up. I grew up in the nineties. We didn't have computers. You know, we yeah. had some in college and we had some floppy disks, but I really got into the stats of it because if I wanted to sell something, I wanted to know about it. Exactly. And I never pushed anybody to buy it because I figured if it was the right product and yeah. I was educated on it and it met their need, that would take care of itself. Yeah. And that sounds cheesy. And I'm, and I'm not saying I haven't pushed people to buy things in my life and done things that I've said, hey, that should have been, let that be more natural. But I found in my career when you allow people to trust you mm-hmm. and that you don't push, 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 that sale comes anyways. And I remember... Yeah having people waiting for me to finish up a sale, but other salespeople were standing there with nothing to do. Yeah. And like, well, well I'll take care of you. Like, no, we'll wait for Shane. Yep. You know? Um, and, and so I really enjoyed the sales part of technology. So, cause you know, as you can get into the technology, then where do you go? I had a technical yeah. degree. All my friends were becoming, you know, admins and SEs and engineers and 
they were making all the good money in the beginning because it was the dot com, and oh, I just yeah. started off at MCI WorldCom, you know, almost no salary, one hundred percent commission. Oh wow! You know, going in business card during lunch, you know, yep. giving zip codes versus a real territory. Yeah. And yet you need to come back with twenty business cards. I'm like, I can't find twenty business cards. I'm going to have lunch. Yeah. So what we would do, I can admit this now, but. We would just go grab our whole handful out of the fish bowls. Yeah. Whatever restaurant we, we would, when they turned their back, we would just yeah. grab all the business cards and we'd come back and go, here's what we found today. Here's what we talked to. We didn't talk to anyone. Not a fun job. But I really enjoyed sales. And then, and, but having the technical background that I did gave me a little bit of advantage because I always wanted to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah. I was never at the level of my engineers, you know, right. them ever. But I could, I could demo the product, basically. I knew how to, I remember back in the day, I was talking to someone, I mean, it was American Airlines, maybe, and I was working at F5 Networks, and a question came up, and I was like, yeah, no, that's, that's not going to happen due to the no, pa- no cash pragma and blah, blah, blah. And they all looked at me and go, aren't you the sales guy? I'm like, yeah, but I listen to my engineer all the time. That's, the best, that's some of the best price you can get from an end user. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I do get that some, a lot. People walk up, and they're like, obviously, you're the engineer, but where's your, I'm like, no, I'm the, I'm, I'm the <laughs> Actually, sales guy. And I take that as a compliment. Absolutely. So it was F5, your first kind of traditional, like big IT, when you're selling a business to business as opposed to business to end user for yeah, IT? Yeah. Well, I said MCI WorldCom was business to business, but you were selling, you know, T1s and fractional. It was yeah. not fun. It was miserable. Um, and then I joined a channel partner, FutureCom, based down in, you know, right here in the Dallas area. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so I worked with them for a little bit and had the opportunity to move to Washington, which we can get into later. But when I went to, when I lived in Washington, I joined F5 Networks oh, okay. uh, on their inside Gosh. sales. So yeah. F5 Networks is based out of Seattle. And so that was my first real company, an IT business to business. Um, besides, I guess I was McAfee before a little bit, you know, yeah. but I guess McAfee would be a bigger, oh, yeah. but I think for my like field level mm-hmm. would be F5. Yeah. And from top to bottom, that was a fun company in the early 2000s. You know, oh, really? set, you know before a billion in sales, we were... Oh, wow. ESPP was rocking for stock. Our stock was splitting. We were consistently beating Cisco when we shouldn't have been because, really? we you know, we were small. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's just, it was just fun. It was a dynamic team. I started off on inside sales, you know, and you'd work a territory, so you'd be a team, right? Oh, you yeah. had an inside sales rep, an engineer, and a field rep, and you all had the same quota. You all are win Excellent. together, you lose together. You yep. get the president's club or... You all look for jobs together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it created that team mentality. And that's where I also learned what a true channel program looked like. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that F5 looks like that now. I don't know. Oh, yeah. you know right, wrong, or indifferent. <clears throat> but it was with integrity, you know, and it was always built upon integrity, doing the right thing. Because if you lost your word with a channel or a customer, oh, yeah. it's really hard to get it back. You could do things true. 100 times perfect, one time mess up, you're done. Uh, and so F5 did it really well from top to bottom. They, um, they were really good at promoting within. I mean, I saw an inside uh, receptionist go to be an engineer to be lead and in product. Oh, it's awesome. All the way from being an inside, you know, just a receptionist. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's rare. Know, I was doing inside sales covering Chicago and the Midwest for a while. And then I got shifted to start covering Texas because it made sense. I'm from here. So I yep. knew people. Uh, and I had an opportunity that was a position for Houston for the field that came up. I interviewed for it, didn't get it. I, you know, I was inside sales still. They had a guy who did live down there, was um, was better well-connected, supposedly. And so I didn't get it. Um, and then about six months later, my VP 
uh, called up and said, hey, we have a position opening up in Dallas. You don't have to interview for it. It's yours. Really? So I didn't. I was like, I got to move. And they're like, yeah, you need to move to Texas. Awesome. And so I moved back to Texas uh, and I had for F5 as of my first time as being a field yeah. rep, you know, carrying quota. And so I had half of Dallas. So I had I-35 East. And out of curiosity, ADHD question somewhat. Yeah. Any advice on the youngsters who are trying to get, because that's one of the hardest roles in IT is going from the inside sales to getting promoted to the field sales. Like some, some reps take years and especially some companies, it's such seems darn near impossible to get promoted from within. So I've had a policy where, not that I'm, I've always been a direct hire, but at least had some influence in companies. And so when, when we hire an inside sales rep or I have one assigned to me, my goal is for them to be out of that role in a year. That's it. If they're sitting longer than that, that's their new career and they become less effective because they're not dry. Now, I will say there's some exceptions. There's some lifelong inside sales reps that are. Yeah, or some people want it. There's yeah. always there's always exceptions. But most I've found they get burned out if they don't get that next level because they start Agreed. seeing like I can close that. I can do what that field rep did. Yep. And it's a lot harder than it looks. I mean, I, oh, yeah. and I remember, you know, Chris Deardorff was the VP and he came to me and he said, Shane, you can talk a dog off a meat truck. Yeah, <laughs> he says, but you have to learn this, the science of sales. Mm-hmm. Everybody else you're watching, they're making it look easy because they've done it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, as far as the advice, I would say that stick close to your engineer and your rep. Mm-hmm. If you have one, if they're good. Oh, yeah. And tell them what your goals are that you want from day one. You want to be promoted. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with joining an inside sales organization with saying, I want to be in this chair as little time as possible. That is supposed to be a training ground for field reps Agreed. in most companies. It's not always used that way. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes they'll have people that are just absolute rock stars mm-hmm. and they want them in that spot to generate that. They don't want to yeah. let them go out. They're worried that's not going to, or you have they're, a rep saying that's my inside rock star. I don't want to release them. And there's politics. They're, they're a victim of their own success in some, in some companies. Yeah. So I would say two things is to make yourself known what you want, get close to the people that are, can help you get promoted. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <clears throat> and then just go that extra mile. Like I said, you know, when people say dress for the job you want, not the job you have, mm-hmm. go above and beyond. If you're being asked to set this many meetings, set more. Exactly. It's just really at this point, it's not about your degree or anything else. It's in sales. It's personality. Right. I, I know so many people that are either have never been to college or didn't finish college mm-hmm. that are makes, you know, high six figures. Oh, yeah based upon their work ethic. So in sales, it's nice. It's the great equalizer. Exactly. You don't need a college degree. You don't need to go to Harvard. Can you sell this product ethically with velocity and repeat it with different technologies over time? Exactly. Anybody can sell Cisco back in the day. Oh, anybody and, can and sell, <laughs> anybody can sell CrowdStrike a couple of years. Anybody can sell yeah. Wiz today. Yeah. Right. But can you sell the product that you're competing with five or six other endpoints or a firewall back in the, you know, 2010, 2012. Yeah. Right. Those type of words. And for me, that's part, it's the thrill of it. Oh yeah. You win some, you lose some. And as long as you don't have too much of a memory, you learn from it, move on. Mm-hmm. It's just always something different. Back to that ADHD. Whatever happened exactly. last week was last week. Exactly. Right. Now, what was it like when you, when you first got the role? Were you just head above water? How did you feel overwhelming? What, what, what was like the first, what was that first day like? Moving to Texas. Oh, I guess moving back to Texas. Back to, back to Texas. And having that new role. Well, I had to go get myself a Cadillac, right? Oh, yeah? Texas. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, it was easy and hard at the same time because I had been doing the inside sales role, which in the inside sales, 
is a team member versus a BDR, which is just doing leads and sending them over. The BDRs yep. never really feel like a team mm-hmm. in a lot of organizations. So the stri- ISRs do yeah. because they have a quota. They feel like we yep. achieve that together. I would I consider an inside sales rep as a quarterback of the team, mm-hmm. not the RSM, not the AE or the VP. It's oh, really? The, the, this, yeah, because that person is sitting in that seat every day. Mm-hmm. They have access to all the calendars. They have all the information coming in. They have all their access to the CRM. They know other moving pieces from other territories. I'm out of pocket. I'm flying. I have a presentation. Yeah. They can almost always be reached. Mm-hmm. And I relied heavily on that person. Mm-hmm. And then they relied heavily on me during that time. So in F5, that was easy for me, the ones and zeros and how to quote mm-hmm. in this procedure. And this is how we work with a channel. What was hard was exactly what was Chris was talking about. The science of sales, understanding, not getting too excited when someone says they want to meet with you and buy. You're like, Oh my gosh, this is American Airlines. I'm going to get a $5 million deal and I'm going to buy five Cadillacs. Who cares? I'll have that close tomorrow. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then also too, it was a very fun but stressful time at F5 because the amount of success, the expectations were unreal. I mean, this was back in 2003 and I had half of Dallas and Oklahoma. Oh, wow. And my number was 5 million a year. That's, That's pretty a big. Lot. That's yeah. a pretty big number for selling load balancers to half a city. And let's be honest, there's not much in Oklahoma. There was, you know, Chesapeake Energy and, th- oh, yeah. and Hobby Lobby, like Dillard's. Couple, yeah, I, I talked to Sonic. That was about it. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I did sell to Sonic. That was fun. Oh, nice. But you know, it was a, it was a stressful time, but it also taught me a lot of how to forecast accountability. Right. So I go to companies now, and someone says, "This is in commit," and I'm like, "Is that really in commit?" Because yeah. when I say commit, it's going to come in unless a war breaks out yeah. or something happens and people use commit now as like, well, it's just a tickler file to keep people off my back until the end of the quarter. Yeah. No, yep. that's best case. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so it just taught me to be open and honest and not flood my own company and end users with potential deals that weren't there. Hmm. It, it just wastes everyone's time. Agreed. Um, and so one thing also about F5 was it will let me, it let me focus on looking at the market and not getting into, not that I've been perfect, I've definitely made some mistakes, but not getting into an area that's already oversaturated mm. or it's, it's commoditized. Yeah. Always try to be ahead of the game. Mm. So low balancers, you know, when they were killing it, that's what we were doing. Yeah. I jumped from there, you know, maybe a small stop in between and then went to checkpoint, mm. and, you know, checkpoint, you know, software and invented the firewall, firewall oh, yeah. one, Gil Schwed. And so that was the time we were going up against Palo Alto and then yeah. Fordnet started coming in. So that was fun, right? We're oh, selling yeah. big deals to, you know, to Expedia and oh, yeah. you know, Getty Images and all these different companies down, you know, down here too. And uh, it was exciting, right? But then started to get commoditized. Yep. Time to go, you know, time to you know, take on that next chapter. Uh, and so it's just trying to find that next technology and be ahead of it. Absolutely. And that's the same thing end users are trying to do. Oh, yeah. Right. But they have to trust people like myself and you and others say, hey, where do we cut through all the white noise to get to the true? Mm-hmm. Not just what Cisco or HP or these big people say. Yeah. What are some of the best of breed, the smaller products that are coming in that are actually better oh, yeah. or can run alongside these legacy products or these bigger companies and help complement them? Mm-hmm. Right. So exactly. There's a lot. People realize a lot of innovation comes up from startups, and then sometimes it's inevitably, inevitably bought by some of the bigger ones. Right. But, I mean, a lot of the innovation comes from, you know, mom-and-pop shops just coming up with new ideas, grinding it out, and growing it out. Yeah. 
And so I would say that the industry has gotten pretty good at that. You know, looking at best of breed products now versus getting pulled into the whole idea of just buying these bigger, uh, these bigger companies and trusting them. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I've also seen, there's also seems to be with the market starting to shift a little bit now, starting to push back to the old world of we need less vendors. Yeah. When you have less vendors, then you have less best of breed. You're making concessions to your security. Yep, right. making those trade-offs. You're making those trade-offs. Yeah, I've seen that too. There's a lot of people are overwhelmed. They have so many things on their plate. They think, oh, yeah, well, we'll just have you know one manufacturer do multiple things. Well, in some cases, that might be the right use case for your environment. But at the end of the day, a wise man once said there's no such thing as solutions, only trade-offs. Right. And I think yes. that's why you know, like, you know, Cisco overall struggled for so many years with their, their security business. They yep. were, of course, switching a routing company. They tried to do security. They made a lot of acquisitions, but they're never able to assimilate those technologies the way the companies they bought had used them Mm -hmm. into theirs. And so they were a huge powerhouse, but on the security side, they didn't have much, you know, um, credibility. And so that's why, you know, F5 networks were be able to do really well there. That's why Checkpoint and Palo Alto were able to come in and take all the security business, no matter who they tried to hire or bring in. It was a culture problem. They were still a networking and switching company. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, I mean, you know, that was what was fun about working at Checkpoint is that was, their soul was firewalls. Yep. One of the issues when I saw them start to struggle more was they got this huge price list and started doing everything else everybody was doing. And to be fair, that's because the next generation firewall was kind of doing that, right? We were yeah. bringing more functionality into the firewall. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, one little side note about being at Checkpoint, it, I did, I uh, was able to, I was there during their, when they went over 1 billion in sales, oh, which wow, is a really? big milestone for oh, the yeah. company. And, Checkpoint is historically, maybe still, a very cheap company, you know, is with their finances, which is, yeah. you know, they've, they've had a lot of money for a long time. So it's obviously worked for them mm-hmm. to be financially stable and not have to, to sell or anything. But um, they invited everyone in the, in the company worldwide and their significant others for a week, you know, in Mexico. Oh, really? To celebrate. You know, we even had like flip-flops when you walk around the beach. It had like the Checkpoint logo on the sand everywhere we walked. Oh, that's brilliant. But it was a super fun time that was, you know, everybody came together to achieve one goal we had been yeah. working on for a long time, you know. And so that was a, a time that, you know, I definitely enjoyed being in there for that moment. I had missed the moment with F5, with F5 networks. I had left before they hit a billion. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, th- that was a, a fun, a fun time. And then also seeing how, you know, Palo Alto just outmarketed them. Oh, yeah. I mean, checkpoint <laughs> firewall, you know, they, they made firewall one and they wow. had this idea that they, they invented the next generation firewall when actually checkpoint actually had the next generation firewall. They just yeah. got outmarketed. I kind of relate it to, and I could be off here. People are going to say, Hey, that's not true, <laughs> but it's like my, it's like, you know, Microsoft and, and Apple. Oh, yeah. One's just a better marketing company than the other. Oh yeah. yeah? So I was going to say, it shows the power of marketing is ridiculously important. And those are some of the best use cases where it's like Palo is really good at getting their logo out there and just driving that point home of next generation firewall. That's in all their marketing materials. You'll see that plastered, that, that exact phrase plastered everywhere you ever hear of their logo. It's there. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then they have the new, we talk about in a little bit, they have a new product that, you know, my company currently competes with, you know, it's, a portion of it, but yeah. now they have the next next gen CASB. Yeah, and they're and in, in the marketing is like you know the old CASB won't work. And it's yeah. it's funny and brilliant. It's yeah. at the same time like hey, our old product won't work. <laughs> you got this next gen CASB, yeah. and it you know and it's more updated. But yeah, and that's part of the problem about these bigger companies. They have to reinvent themselves to outdo their own products that they pushed so hard. Yeah, six months ago. 
Exactly. A little awkward too. <laughs> a little awkward. <laughs> and so sometimes it comes across as less believable, not yeah. necessarily in the Palo Alto case, but just in general. Oh, yeah. um, when you don't, when you finally make that shift and you're a bigger company, it takes longer to, to turn that aircraft carrier, right? Exactly. Versus a small company. It sometimes can come, come across as disingenuous. Absolutely. And then where do you go after Checkpoint? So I had some smaller, you know, little roles. I, I went to, you know, Coyote Point Systems and, you know, try to start this little uh, smaller version of F5. Didn't work. Um, I eventually ended up at Clarity. It was oh, kind yeah. of, I guess what, yeah. I mean, before that was Tufin. I did, went, went public with Tufin, mm-hmm. which was great. Um, you know, firewall automation. So I got to work with that world again. Did, uh, learned a lot about automation, automating firewall rules. And, but the next really integrated, big portion of my career was at Clarity. So I, I joined Clarity and their focus is on, you know, industrial control systems and operational technology, which I knew nothing about. Cause back in, in, you know, what infrastructure, you know, what area is that? Right. So it's yeah. critical infrastructure, your water, your power, your gas lines, it could be manufacturing. So I worked a lot with Intel and, you know, uh, putting in all the operational technology and security for Tesla globally. Oh, cool. You know, so going to their, you know, going to Fremont and then, yeah. you know, and having all the inside information of what's happening in Beijing, you know, when they're opening up that plant and Austin plant and Berlin and, and all that. So it was really fun learning all that technology. And, um, but, you know, it also, it, for the first time in a long time, I kind of got not only burnout about selling software. I mean, like, what am I doing? I'm protecting a big company that has a lot of money and they have insurance. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like the military anymore. It didn't yeah. feel like I had a bigger purpose. But with Clarity, it did. And anybody in ICS, not just necessarily Clarity, mm-hmm. but we were actually trying to start state attacks or attacks on our water systems, mm-hmm. our, our power, yeah. our grid. These matter, oh, yeah. right? I mean, c- complete chaos, right? If, if these essential services go down, and, and then learning that before they were all air-gapped, so right. it really wasn't that scary, right? Don't yeah. touch manufacturing. Just leave them alone. Let them pump out money. Yep. But with the evolution of more data, they wanted to find out in manufacturing. How could they be more efficient? So they need to start you know, covering what's our efficiency rate? How much does this cost? How many units sold? How many units produced? How much does this paint cost? How much is this? Well, all that data needed to be shared with corporate. Yep. Air-gaps are gone. Yep. <laughs> right? So now you have a CISO that has no clue what I can, you know, ICS is an operational technology. I mean, even the, the protocols aren't the same. There's no TCP IP. Yeah. It's like Modbus, Profibus. It's stuff that from Honeywell and, oh, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, you know, Rockford, you know, I mean, um, Rockwell, Rockwell yeah. and, uh, Schneider and all that. So there's, they're not even normal protocols that any of our products talk to or understand. So your normal firewalls don't work. Your endpoint security does not work. You know, now you're looking at Purdue models, and does this level need to be shared with this level? And it was just a whole new world for me. I'd been in IT for 15 years or almost, but it was like it was like all it was like I went to another planet and learned a whole different type of technology, and it meant something. It was important. Yeah. Right. And so maybe not important to keep Tesla's, you know shut down but uh you know water and power and, and those fun things and, and, and mining companies getting minerals out of the ground i thought i would never i remember years ago having meetings with chesapeake energy at f5 networks up in oklahoma city oh, yeah. and going in there and doing a presentation on load balancing and you know you you can't go down high availability blah 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 and they're like it's great shay it's all that it sounds wonderful but if at the end of the day if our networks go down we're still pumping oil out of the ground yeah we don't care <laughs> we don't care Fast forward 
to several years, I'm talking to a mining company in Canada. I'm talking to a oil company in Canada. Now they have WellWatch and these different software programs. Mm-hmm. Now, just like Tesla, they want to know what's happening in that ground. Yep. They need to know real time what's the production, what's the chemicals are coming out of there, what's the composition, what's the flow rate. Well, then now all that needs to be connected somewhere too. Hence more security vulnerabilities. Hence more <laughs> vulnerabilities, even down to mining. Oh, yeah. uh, and so the areas that, that before didn't need connectivity, they all now have to have it. And so back to that paradigm of how does a CISO manage and implement security on an organization he's never talked to? These, these people may be um, IT people. Or they may just be a worker, assembly line worker that has been trained to do one little thing to work on this PLC or work on this you know, historian or whatever. That's not what they do. Yeah. And so in all your IT staff is completely clueless on this whole other world. And how yeah. do we get them together? And that was the fun. It was, okay, my job or our job is to get the CISO to talk to the IT person on the plant. How do we get them talking, sharing yep. information, and making it secure? And so that was a lot of fun. Um, but there was also, it was a little bit stressful too because it was a little bit early for people to see that value. And so it was just harder we were getting sales, but it wasn't as beneficial from a sales rep's point of view financially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to make some you know, decisions for the family to, to go on to a different career. But, and I've actually you know, reached back out to them a couple of years ago and said, hey, I made a mistake. Yeah. You know, I, I missed that company, that, you know, the people, the mission, and um, it just didn't work out. That I, I was welcome to go back. There just yeah. wasn't a role at the same time that yeah. matched mine. And I'm glad I ended up where I did. But uh, Clarity is a, a great organization, and uh, I mean, it's been fun to watch them grow from not just ICS and operational technology, but also the acquisition of um, a medical company. Mm-hmm. I forgot which one it is, but so medical devices and, you know, and um, on the hospital side too. Uh, so it's been it's fun watching them you know, grow. It's like every one of those things that connects to the network is yet another risk. Yeah, I mean, every <laughs> blood pressure monitor. I mean, everything yep. is connected. And you think about if that gets hacked, right? What does oh, it yeah. matter? I mean, it's so everything has RFID. Everything has embedded with this chip. Everything's embedded with this application of this SaaS service connected to it. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it keeps us on our toes. Absolutely. Then where do you go from Clarity? So a short trip at, at Scout. So I was at Scout for about seven months. I had worked with at Blue Coat years ago, had a great run there and, you know, worked with Steve Tijan um, and, and, and Greg Clark, the CEO. And I know they had moved, they had moved over to Scout. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go there. I'm like, Hey, let's get the team back together. Yeah. But they were, you know, bought by a venture capital group and the CEO yeah. changed a month after I got there. Oh, no. I decided, Hey, I want to be, I want to you know, take part in more of the capital side of my business, venture capital versus the running the Scout. Yeah. And so things kind of fell apart. I mean, I, I was laid off. My engineer was laid off. The VP left oh, geez. seven months after I got there. So I'm like, okay, I left Clarity. Yeah. This great place I loved to go to four scout. And the reason I went to four scout is because I would, I could, I was able to sell at four scout, their OT and ICS product, mm-hmm. just like I did at clarity. Yeah. But I could also sell traditional products back to the rest, rest of corporate America yeah. because there was a lot of, pro- I was losing contact with my customers. I couldn't sell yeah. it to Expedia anymore. I couldn't sell to Starbucks anymore. I couldn't yeah. sell to Alaska airlines anymore. And so I'm like, Oh, with, with four scout, I could do both. Exactly. That's in both worlds. And I yeah. was brought in as the OTX, one of the OT experts. And it was great. It's just, you know, venture capital, you know, they, you know, yep. you can wipe out a whole division, just uh, one decision. Oh yeah. Uh, but that's part of sales, right? You don't, you have the ups and you have the downs and you got to be able to roll with it. 
Um, so I, you know, built some vans on the side, you know, building some sprinter vans on the side, um, weather the storm and, and had the opportunity to, uh, work with some Israeli startups. And I, uh, just joined wing security about two months ago, uh, which has been phenomenal. Uh, it was, um, it brought me on board to, with my sales background to run and build the channel out. And I had done that in some previous roles. Um, and I, one of the things I was frustrated with in my career as a sales rep was anytime we interacted with the channel or a channel manager for whatever vendor, whether it was my own or someone else we partnered with, a technology partner, the channel managers usually didn't sell anything. They yeah. had no history of selling. You know, they were, they do meetings, they do MDF, worried about MDF funds and partner portals yep. and tracking down deal regs and yep. getting this golf tournament, but they didn't really care about getting anything closed. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened the last couple of years has been pushed from, you know, CROs and C-level to get people in the channel that's carried a bag. Mm-hmm. So that's what I came, you know, bringing over 20 plus years of experience of selling and working with the channel, always going through the channel, probably five direct deals in my career. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a little light, but it was, had to be a reason not to go to the channel for me. Yeah. I've always interviewed that way. It's the channel is it's very important to me. I can't meet everyone as much as I talk and as fast as I talk, <laughs> I can't talk to everyone. So, you know, the, op- the idea was is that we, we put a salesperson in a channel role to build this out the right way. And so, you know, so I can go to my channel partners that I worked with. I can make phone calls and say, hey, we've worked in the past together. We sold this at ABC. Yep. Let's, you know, let's do this again. Yeah. And so they may not always see the value. They may not always say, hey, I'm going to go out there and sell your product 100%, Shane. But at least I get a shot at it because Absolutely. I've built that relationship and I've, I've closed deals with them. And so that's what I'm trying to build now is a a channel program that is reseller focused and rep focused. That's all that matters. At the end of the day, we're driving revenue, right? You can't go public or get bought on meetings or deal regs or (laughs) forecasting a deal. It needs to be closed revenue. And um, so that's, you know, so my, my, my role right now is getting those partnerships ready, you know, together, you know, topping being one of them, Uh, you know, we're going to have a focused amount of those. And then from there, making them successful and then growing from that, you know, growing from that portion uh, as we need to. Then what is Ring Security, just rudimentary speaking, for my parents at home? Yeah, so we work in the SSPM space. It's a new acronym I learned as well, so I, don't I worry can't about keep it. track of all of them. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so it's SAS Security Posture Management. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very prevalent and needed, but most people don't know the acronym. But everyone would know what a SAS application is. Um, you know, I have some family members that after 20 years, they still have no idea what I've done at any company. Yeah. Uh, I think they think I work at NSA or something, or, I can, <laughs> or either that, or I somehow I'm their computer person. I need to fix their, their yeah. laptop, which neither one of those are true. <laughs> um, but, you know, SSPM is easily explained because it's on everyone's phones at home, right? Yeah. So I asked my, tell my mom, it's like, on your, on your phone, you have Facebook app, you have, you know, American Airlines, you have hundreds. I think the average person has like 80 apps on their phone. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so those are just software as a service applications. All that data is not running on the phone. It's in a service. And most people listening to this, you know, this podcast would know that. In the cloud. In the cloud. But it's yep. also what people know, right? They have them on their phone. They see them. They interact with them every day. They trust them. It's their online banking. I mean, everything is right. app. If you go onto a website, it's going to say, hey, please download our app. Yep. Every company, everything. Even McDonald's. Everyone has an app. Everyone has an app, right? My son tells, I'm not a big McDonald's person, but he tells me if I go there every once in a while, it's 
still get a mobile because it's still worth it even if I rarely go. Oh, yeah. So, you know, once again, it's a bunch of people capturing your information. Exactly. The power of data and IT. I mean, every company is an IT company. They just don't know it yet. So those applications, if we use the, the idea of the phone, we're downloading those. If you're on Android, you're downloading from their store. Yep. It's a little bit less secure, is my understanding. I don't know. Right. And then you have from the Apple side, you're downloading from the Apple store, which is a little bit better, you know, vetted. So you're trusting those organizations to deliver your SaaS application security. And most yep. people are like, okay, it's either take it or leave it. You sign and agree to it or not. And yep. there's, you don't think about it ever again. Well, you don't think about what's happening to those applications in the background. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal, but it's not a big deal at an individual level for you and I. Yeah. But now we take that and extrapolate that to the corporate level. Yep. Now you're talking about companies that have hundreds, thousands if not tens of thousands of applications mm-hmm. in their network. The average company has like 28 roughly apps per person. Oh yeah. And that doesn't mean they're all separate, but yeah. most, like I said, thousands. And so we will come into companies and we'll say simple things like how many SaaS applications do you think you have? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we have 350 because that's the ones that are approved. Yep. <laughs> we, go, we go do a simple POC, takes 10 minutes, super admin privileges. We start pulling all the data up. And we're not all pulling up just sanctioned applications. We're pulling up apps that are not supposed to be there. Those These are coming under the radar, right? Mm-hmm. We can, everybody can see. All of our competitors in a normal CASB can see just a normal sanctioned. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you can do anything about it. It doesn't mean you can apply security at that application level internally. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's not just good enough to see that information. Right. And so... If you figure that that many are out there, so what we, this they say we're like 378, and we go pull the data, and they're like, and we have, oh, you have 1,074. Just making up a number. They're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, that's not even close. Yeah. And then what they instantly do, they'll say, can we dig into that? And of course, we'll pull up the apps. And like, okay, well, what is that one? So we'll go to the n- least used apps portion of the demo, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we'll show, like, I've never seen that before. And there are maybe 50, 100, or 1,000 of those. Oh, yeah. And they're like, what is that? Click on that one. Like, it has two users, right? Yep. And you go, that person doesn't even work here anymore. Yeah. That person was offboarded two years ago. Well, obviously not. Yeah. And that's why I informed them like, that, you know, you said your stats, you know, all your stats are made up. This is probably close, but could be a little bit off. That 45% of all companies have at least four employees or not properly offloaded. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is, and once again, I'm a sales rep and a ch- channel guy, so I might get this wrong exactly. But, you know, when you take someone off Okta, you offboard them. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, you take your token away, you offboard them, yeah. but you don't know what applications they were connected to in the background, whether it be non-sanctioned or just this application is now connected to this application that has a token. And so now you've got them off Okta. You have no, now you can't even search anymore, Yeah. but all those connections are still there. So we'd pull up and go, Bob, what is, he was, he was gone two years ago. Can we, or we revoke it right away? Yeah. Or they'll say, well, what the heck did Bob share this whole time? We're like, well, I'll tell you what Bob shared. We can actually go in and throughout time, however long that network's been there, and tell you all the file shares, all the SaaS applications, who shared what with when and who. Sounds like a compliance Absolutely. (laughs) So, And we can get into that later, but that's exactly what that big push is. So the actual compliance will be SOC 2 and ISO 27001 certified in both of those. And our product allows you to do those three to four access reviews a year, you know, in our, in our product, you know, to comply with SOC 2 and ISO 2001. So, you know, the, the problem is, is should be apparent to everyone. Mm -hmm. 
Like even your mom and dad and sisters, yeah. they know those theirs. And I would say it is the new, it is the newer attack vector. And know every, everybody, you know, talks about that and uses that and it's overused. Yeah. You know, they're talking about fishing before, mm-hmm. right? Well, why do people do fishing? Well, they didn't really care about Betty as a receptionist or an accounting. They wanted to get access to Betty to get internal, to get internally. Yep. Well, we're doing that every day with microservices, with, you know, AI, generative AI, when it's going to start making those decisions on their own, they're already starting doing it now. And so now these are all being done on the behalf outside of what you're seeing and what's going on. Right. And you have no idea that's happening in the background. Oh yeah. Right. And so we help uncover that. It's the things you don't know about that keep you up at night, especially from, especially from a uh, security perspective. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Every employee has Salesforce, but it's all the apps that you wonder why the hell do they download this? Right. What does this have to do with work? Then where was this published? <laughs> well, a good example is, you know, everybody starts talking about, you know, shadow IT. And we yeah. use that too. You'll see it all over our website. And I'm not disagreeing with it, but it's, I think it's overused. And shadow IT makes it seem like someone's being nefarious or trying to be deceitful. We're in a world now of business-led IT, mm-hmm. right? They're not trying to be malicious. They're trying to be productive. They're using chat GPT to debug their code. They're using ChatGPT to help write their emails. They're using this other application to help do whatever in the background. But they don't know that they possibly have introduced malware. Yep. Do you think Betty knows the difference between ChatGPT.OpenAI or ChatGPT.AI? They're or, completely different. Yep. .Open.AI is legit. Yeah. But the .AI version, and there's tons of those, is like a little bit different logo, barely. You can see it in the circle. It's a different shade of green. So it has become the new phishing. Oh, yeah. And so why, care, why worry about sending Betty an email for her to trick her into clicking it when you can just have her download the app on her herself? Yep. And you go, well, okay, well, Betty, she's going to download. We're going to catch that because we don't allow certain apps. Mm-hmm. We don't allow you know, But then why are they there? Right? I won't... I haven't confirmed these actual numbers yet, so I don't, but you'll get the gist of it. Roughly 91% of Google environments allow chat GPT. Mm. And that makes sense because Google overall is an allow all deny platform. Mm. But 91% use it, right? On Microsoft environments, roughly only 25 maybe percent allow it because Microsoft's a deny all allow platform. Mm. So that would make sense too. Yeah. But when you actually start doing polling, you talk to their three, 400 customers and you talk to other people and start reading reports, it's almost 100% of all those companies have chat GPT. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, if they're not allowed, then how do they get it? They're using their Gmail. They're using their Hotmail. They're using whatever. Yep. And so not only do we go in to look at the Google environment and OAuth, we also can go look at emails. Hmm. There's an email, welcome email somewhere. Oh, yeah. And so true. we're looking for that in the metadata, right? Oh, there's your welcome email to... ChatGPT.ai. Yep. They, ins- they, they can install these products and probably never even thought about it again, never even used it, but all those permissions are set up in the background. So I'll give you an example. We'll talk about Betty again, right? Betty's, a, let's say she's a sales rep now, and she has calls. And so when she does Zoom calls, she wants this cool little widget in the background that says the weather and where she's from and that she's into ultra marathons and has two kids, you know, all that fun stuff. And so she downloads that app. We see that now. We're like, hey, what's going on here? So we send a message, fully automated, because you want to automate this process. You don't yep. want to be playing whack-a-mole exactly. with thousands of apps, right? We automate this process, and we send an email. 
to Betty and say, hey, we've noticed you're using this app. What do you need this app for? Mm-hmm. And then she comes back and she says, you know, well, I use it for this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. And we look, in the, we look at it and we go, okay, we, what is this application trying to do in the background? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, it looks like it's just pretty benign. It's not asking for any special privileges. It's just pretty easy. Yep. Oh, cool. Approved. You can have that, Betty. No worries. Well, I'm not going to start this business-led IT. I'm not going to slow you down. Yeah. Let's say she asked for it, and I start pulling it up, and I use our reputation database. We track over 280,000 applications, and we're the oh, only wow. company that does that. 280,000? Over. I think it's over 300,000 now, but we can't keep up. Right? Wow. I don't even know how that many exist, but they yeah. do. And you could think about how many, and most of those are free. Yeah. And just well, there's quick one free. free. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Everybody can have them. <laughs> right? Yeah, so it's a huge amount of those of those applications that are out there. So let's say, for instance, that because of a reputation database, we see that, oh, it's asking for um, calendar access, read-write, file sharing. We're like, oh, no, Betty, you yeah. can't have that. <laughs> it's, it's denied, yep. right? What we can also do, let's say if Betty doesn't reply to us, we send an email, say, hey, we need to know what you're using it for, doesn't reply. We can send another reminder email, completely automated, or we can just simply revoke it. And what we found is if you revert, revoke things when no one replies, if they really need it, they're going to reach back out to turn it on. Exactly. And that's, when you're, that's your point of your policy enforcement. Mm-hmm. And so, one, so it's part of us is not just discovery. It's the remediation, fixing that problem, revoking, adding, taking privileges away, uh, seeing that path where that token's going, uh, that path whatever else is linked to like supply chain. We can actually crawl the supply chain and see whoever else oh, really? you might have your vendors yeah. exposing your data because you're linked up now mm-hmm. from an app, from a SAS app to SAS app, right? Are they exposing your data, right? We can actually crawl and go look at that as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So then, you know, so you have discovery, you have remediate, and then you have automation. If you don't have the automation piece, then you're, like I said, you're always going to be playing whack-a-mole yeah. and never getting in front of the problem. So you could set policies that say based upon these permissions and what they're asking for automatically denied are certain regions any any you know SaaS applications from china right yeah. no no brainer right north korea no brainer i'm not yeah. sure if they have apps but no brainer and so you can set all those parameters and so once you have the product set up you're talking eight to ten hours a month to monitor and maintain it's not too bad not too bad at all yeah and it is like i said the the area that no one is very few people are taking paying attention to right now I mean, what other data point do you have in an organization with thousands of points of entry that no one's looking at? That's a good point. Everyone's already taking care of their firewalls pretty darn good. Right. Made. You know, and CASBs can look at user access and you know, your identity management people or they're looking and they're stuck on PAM and they're worried about user access. And I got my CAS. I was selling CASBs at Bluecoat, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Right. It's like the VPN. It's time to go. Oh, yeah. Right. ZTA. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that's where we need to focus on. Right is that that area that is not is not looked at at all. Mm-hmm. So the 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 example I like to use, and I'll wrap this piece up on on why this is important, is if you have a SaaS application, it's like hiring a subcontractor. Mm-hmm. Right, that person is coming in. They're reading your emails. They may be writing your code. They have file access. Mm-hmm. They are just like they're writing your email. Like they're doing. They're just basically your assistant. They're inside. Would a company bring in a subcontractor without doing a background check, give them policies, knowing things about them? There's no way in the world we would do that. I've spent my whole career <laughs> trying to lock those people down that come in these organizations, but yet we're allowing them every day 
wide open right into our other networks. And we're just saying it'll be fine just because we recognize that logo as Slack or we yeah. recognize that Google logo, oh, that it's going to be fine. Yeah. Every one of those companies have been hacked. Open oh, yeah. AI has been hacked. Yeah. I mean, so, in, so, and then you start getting the generative AI. Now it's going to start making decisions on your behalf. Mm-hmm. Well, then, so you need a mechanism that understands what application is being requested, what the impact is going to be, and you just say, make a, educate, a logical decision, do you allow that or not? Mm-hmm. And not just hope that your CASB or other systems have caught it because they haven't. Yeah. Are there, why do we see them every time when we come in? Why are we shocked? Why are customers shocked 100% of the time that we go in? Right? Yeah. And so I would say, you know, to take a step back from Wing real quick, I would just say SSPM in general, mm-hmm. we need to take a look at it. We can't rely on the big companies like Palo Alto and Netscope to have a radio button or a little checkbox on their CAS, their new CASB. It's not in depth enough. We are installed right alongside these bigger companies because they don't have that full functionality. We're not saying come in and rip and replace yeah. that we can replace a CASB. We can. We do our portion very, very well. Yeah. And I was going to say, you said how quickly can it be deployed? It was astonishingly fast. Oh, we like about earlier. Little, as, little as three minutes. I've seen take 10. It really comes down to admin privileges. It's, you know, whoever has privileges, you know, super admin privileges, and then the, you know, the admin for those different applications to give access to. Uh, we're not in line, we're not a proxy, and we have no agent. Oh, nice. So there's really no pushback. The only pushback we really have is finding out who has the access to give it to us. Yeah. And once we have that, we're populating, we have connectors, we connect you know, your Google environment, your office environment, things like that. Yep. And then we're pulling data within three minutes. So That's blistering fast. Yeah. So generally in most of my career, it's always to set up a POV or a POC. Like in my last company, we did um, secrets management competing against Hashi. Yeah. That's not an easy POC to get everybody yeah. to sign off and where to put your you know, access to your secrets. And yeah. Oh, by the way, we're a SAS. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, this is much less intrusive and much quicker. And I can, comp- I can say on, I can sit on this podcast all day long and say every company out there has a magnitude more SaaS application that they think, but they don't believe it. And they right. believe it with it. It doesn't matter to them until you show it on theirs. Exactly. So when I'm able to show you have 647 and you thought you had 342 yeah. or you have all these applications, you, they're leaking data right now that you had no idea. I mean, even simply starting out on the level of your, your DevOps team to go, is our source code leaking? Yeah. I mean, don't even have to start with the whole company, start in a division, an area that you're worried about data loss. Intellect in that so your DevOps is a very good place to start. Everyone's already they, they understand the product. They're they're IT related. They get it. They're probably not going to push back more on it. So our big thing is to test whether it be with us. And I'll be I'll even say even our competitors. Yeah. Find out what you don't know and don't just trust if the bigger manufacturers are taking care of it. Because if you go right now to those bigger manufacturers, they're talking about SSPM. Oh, yeah. They're just now joining the game, what we've been doing for a while, and our, some of our competitors. Um, and that's okay. They're helping us market. They're letting people know it's a problem. Exactly. But what we're saying is that while you, now that you know it's a problem, take a look at all the players. Yep. And then who could benefit you more? Who has the most complete solution? I would even say we, we've lost some deals that we were a better product over here. But that end user needed a functionality that we didn't have yet. Yeah. And being young, we'd adapt. So feature request comes in, we, okay, R&D, we're going to shift over here because this yep. is where the market's going. And that is the benefit of a small company. Be more agile. More agile, very quick, right? Yep. I mean, how fast did we get that last you know, order done? It was exactly. Very quick. 
Start uh, eight, I think I got you a PO in 18 seconds or something. Yeah, our average deal, <laughs> our average deal cycle sale is anywhere from five to 10 weeks, oh, yeah. which is very short. We've had deals slower Absolutely. than that, but that's very fast to have a product that can have that quick of an impact. And to show that much value, that's another beautiful thing about, oh, I know just software in general these days. I remember back in the day when I used to work at HPE, if you want to do a POC, depending on what re- partner you're working with, I mean, shipping that hardware could take weeks, months, it's... Nowadays, I mean, it's just the speed of light when it comes to setting up POC for apps. Absolutely. And software. It's just Absolutely. so much easier. Well, you just think about how easy it is for you to be infiltrated. If it's that easy for us to show oh, yeah. everything about it and demo our products, then imagine what someone has to do in the back. And if they came in the back door and no one knows they're there and they have time. Exactly. To play, right? And they're setting up those microservices or setting up yeah. those back ends too. And you won't even know it. Exactly. You won't even know it. And then out of curiosity, what do you think? You think that's the big future of cybersecurity? Because everyone's talking about the, the threat vector. This sounds like one of the biggest growing threat vectors people are just now starting to think about and really take seriously. Yeah, I, I think there's probably some maybe overarching larger pieces that kind of integrate into it. But I think as far as your clear attack vector that I mean, surface that's not being addressed right now, mm-hmm. it's absolutely SSPM. Yeah. Um, I think it'll take off more when, you know, Gartner's, you know, Forrester had a report on it recently. You'll have, um, you know, when Gartner has a magic quadrant, that's probably yeah. people start paying attention. Right. Um, yeah. but I, I, th- we have seen a huge uptick in the last six months on interest on this. We've seen a lot more competitors. You know, yeah. we, we have our next round of funding coming up. You know, we we already had, you know, we already had our series a like 27 million. We have series B coming up this next year. Excellent. And there's a lot of competitors. And so I think you know, that tells me that the market is ready, mm-hmm. you know, for that, for that product because it's been ignored. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so I think right now it's just picking through the different vendors out there and saying, hey, this vendor focuses on this and that's what we need. Mm-hmm. Or this vendor, hey, we have so many apps. We have no idea what they are. We really need that reputation database. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, we need you to crawl our, our, supply, yeah. you know, our supply. Or we need you to find out our unsanctioned. You know, if you don't, if you only care about sanctioned and you're a big organization there, you know, we do great, but there's other yeah. options as well. And so it, 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 the reason why I say that most people wouldn't come on and say, you know, take a look at the competitors. I think we would be naive to think that wing security can take care of everyone. Yeah. It's, it, it's better for us if the whole market becomes educated mm-hmm. and if they choose us, if they choose us because we're the right product, the right fit, the right price. Exactly. If they don't, then we need to adjust. Exactly. And like we were saying earlier in the show, got improvised, adapt, overcome and got evolve. Right? That's what I love about sales. Absolutely. Going to market. And what do you like to do outside sales? What are a couple of your fun hobbies? Like oh, new? we could talk a couple more hours <laughs> on that. Um, you know, so right now it's a lot of snowboarding, backcountry. Oh, really? I do a lot of, I live in Washington, so I'm outdoors a lot. Yeah. Uh, I just bought, you know, 20 acres near the Canadian border, so that's been a lot of fun, you know. Cutting firewood and, you know, burning, you know, brush piles and remind me of my, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, I was telling my dad the other day, just that smell, doesn't matter what wood's burning, just that smell. And I just closed my eyes and it took me back to, you know, Buffalo, Texas, you know, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, You know, I I did a lot of mountain climbing, you know, I've done a lot of mountain climbing, uh, you know, South America, you know, Peru, Bolivia. Oh, really? uh, You know, Africa, things like that. What's What's your favorite accomplishment from a climbing perspective? Or what's the biggest highlight that you really was your favorite one? Uh, I think I think uh, it would have been in Bolivia, um, Pequeño Alpamayo. It's a little over seventeen thousand feet. It was kind of more, one of oh my, my first gosh. bigger mountains, you know, yeah. after climbing Rainier. You have to take air for that, or what kind no, of spot? usually oh, really? air is around twenty five thousand feet unless you're sick. Yeah, you know? um, and it's, it doesn't really matter how you know. I've I've been up on up on mountains where you could have an ultra marathoner that can't get above ten thousand feet. They just can't process oxygen. And I've had guys that are 
350 pounds, just do it like a champ. Really? Right? So you really can't. Uh, it's the human body's weird of how it processes oxygen. It's not necessarily your fitness level. You need to be fit to climb, right. but it's how you process oxygen. Uh, so I think Pequeno up a mile because it was my first big mountain above 15,000 and above Rainier, mm-hmm. which is, you know, one of the biggest ones around. That's what I trained on. I mean, our, you know, I was, we were hiking up, we had some mules and then I'm, I remember passing going through these mountains and I watched an alpaca being born. Oh, really? Like it was crazy. Um, and just that whole experience and, um, you know, being up on top, getting to the top, finally, we had a perfect weather window, and I have these pictures. I'm just sitting up there with a T-shirt. It's 17,000 feet oh, really? with an ice. And usually you have to get off a mountain pretty quick. It's usually windy and cold and nasty. But that was yeah. a great a great trip. And, you know, that's right after I moved from, from Texas to Washington. So it was kind of a culmination of a lot of things. You know, I'd moved to te- from Washington. I'd never been there. Oh, really? I just got in the truck and drove. I mean, I've been there one time. Yeah. And then I came back and said, I want to move there. And I asked the company I was working for, Futurecom at the time. Yeah. I said, I want to move and climb, and I need, to, I need to be more outdoors other than Texas. I want to learn something. And they said, anywhere you want to go. Really? It was Kevin Dutton. They allowed me to go, and Sean Stenovich from back in the day. And I said, yeah. So I, I researched all over and chose Seattle. And, That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I moved up there and just started climbing. And then, yeah, then I joined F5, and yeah, yeah which helped pay for it. But um, Very cool. Yeah, so I, that, that led me to just really the love of the outdoors and the mountains. So. Mm-hmm. Like I said, a lot of snowboarding, a lot of backpacking. I'm up on Rainier a lot, um, you know, backcountry, you know, skinning up and putting in the avalanche beacon and the snow shovel and, you know, just heading out, you know, some, some resort days and some backcountry. But, yeah, just being outside. Yeah, yeah I was going to say the pictures you showed me look like they should be on a postcard. They get, it looks perfect. Yeah, I, <laughs> I love Texas. It'll, Texas will always be in my heart. It's where I was born and raised. It's where I started my family, built a house. But... There's just something about being in the Pacific Northwest. It's like being in a picture. It's like yeah. being in a postcard every day. And like I can go visit a national park or I can live in a national park. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a little bit more expensive, a little bit further away from family. Mm. But I love it. And, you know, it's really hard to go snowboarding and mountain bike, you know, snowboarding and mountain climbing in Dallas. As much <laughs> as I like it, you know, the overpasses are tall, but they're not that tall. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so that was, it was a big decision because I left you know, my, my friends, you know, I'm a best friend. Like I'm going to see him tonight and his kids, you know, one of the kids I never even met because I'm yeah. not here, you know? And so I'm like, they won't know who I am. So, um, but I, you know, Washington is my home now. It's where I raise my family. I love it. We go up to Canada a lot. Oh, really? We're so close. You know, matter of fact, several years ago I had, uh, my season passes were at Big White in Canada. So I had yeah. season passes in Canada, not in the U.S. Oh, really? The snow is so great, and it's cheaper because of the exchange rate. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, win-win. So, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so, yeah, recently we've been doing a lot more adventures. I started, I mentioned earlier, I started building um, adventure vans on the side. Oh, know, really? When I was laid off and had some time during the COVID, what else are you going to do, right? Oh, yeah. And so started building, sprint, converting sprinters and uh, like, um, so how's that, transit. how's this process work? You buy the Mercedes Sprinter and you just st- strip out the interior and then yeah, it depends on some... the model. So most people just buy the, an empty van and mm-hmm. bring it to me and yeah. then I would just do it all right. Or, or finish what they started. So mm-hmm. it may come to me and <clears throat> completely just Amazon van, yeah. right? Just that style. And I got to cut in all the, cut all the windows out. I got to put in all the flooring, the electrical, the, the plumbing, the shower, like all the upholstery and, and for me, it was great because you get to use your hands again, right? Yeah. You know, selling, you're not ever, you don't like to show yeah, it's, what you're it's doing. software. It's hard right. to quantify yeah. it sometimes. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. But it was just, it kind of reminded me of technology. There was so many little things I had to learn, and it's oh, yeah. kind of daunting. So if, if you look at it all going, I got to build this, basically turn this cargo van into a livable RV. You're like, yeah. oh, my God, it's 
crazy. I can't do that shit. You got to cram it all in there too because it's a small footprint. But then what you have to do is it's kind of like looking at a network and securing a network, right? And yeah. so if you look at it from the top and bottom, go, oh shit, I have cloud services. I still have on-prem. I have some legacy. I have some token ring over in this manufacturing facility what? for all reason. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, you're like, like energy, energy companies oh, yeah. have crazy stuff in their little, in their substations and stuff. You know, to be able to, but if you take a step back and go, okay, I can't do all this at one point. Yeah. I'm going to start with the flooring. Or I'm going to start with the windows. The same yep. thing, right? I'm going to start with securing the border, DMZ, right. and I'm going to go into cloud security, and I'm going to, you know, you know, SaaS security, whatever. It's just so it's taking that problem and breaking it down in bite-sized problems. And once yeah. you do that, you're like, oh, this is easy. Yeah. It's kind of like building a channel program. You first, you're yeah. like, I got to figure out the budget. I got to figure out, do we need to go to Japan now? Do we need to yeah. go to Korea? Oh, no. I mean, how, what's, how much staff do we hire? Do we yeah. leave with PLG? Do we try to go to more enterprise? Where do we yeah. do our marketing? That's daunting. Oh, yeah. Take a step back, Shane. Yeah. Here's what we need to focus on. Let's do these steps, and then that'll get us to the next one. And then we'll worry about Japan. Oh, yeah. We'll worry about this functionality. We'll worry about this competitor. Yeah. Right. Just do what you do right best, and then just build from there. Exactly. Yeah. What are your thoughts about turning the Cybertruck into an RV? There's no room, but it could no. pull one. <laughs> I mean, right. there are some... You know, there's, there's some uh, expensive there's like ones you could put like in the back of the it kind of expands almost reminds me of the lorax like the oh, yeah. movie it just kind of all folds out um but it's like a hundred thousand dollars just for the thing that fits in the back of a hundred thousand dollar truck so yeah there'll oh, be geez. people who do it yeah uh i think the, the bigger what you're going to see more of is you're going to see trailers that are elect um ev enabled so, matter of fact, uh, Airstream has one right now. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's a little silver, you know, Airstream, mm-hmm. and it's electric. And so it has power in the, in the wheels. Really? So when you're driving it, yeah. you're not pull, you don't have complete dead weight. You charge it, and so now instead of getting, you know, getting half of your range, you're back up to your full range or 75% because the now the trailer is pushing itself or helping Really? That's and clever. Which okay. is even cooler, though, is when the biggest part of owning a trailer is backing that damn thing in, right? Oh, you know, yeah. you see the T-shirts, right? <laughs> sorry what I, to your you know, wife, sorry for what I said when we were backing in the trailer. <laughs> sorry what I said when uh, we were setting up the tent. Yep. Right? It's the same thing. But with this new trailer, what you can do is that you go ahead and unhook it, mm-hmm. disconnect it, and then you have a remote. It already has wheels that are powered, and they have the front turns, right? And so you literally just back your trailer up not connected to the truck. Yeah. You move it around, pull it forward, move it wherever you need it to move. It's just like a remote control car at this point. That's pretty so, innovative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah, and it's, you know, that's where technology started, right? Oh, yeah. Real expensive. Like the first plasma, right, was like a, what? Oh, know, yeah. 30, 30 <laughs> inch, whatever. It was like 12 grand. Now you can get one LED for like 100 bucks. Yeah. And so that's where that'll happen. You'll start seeing more of these elect, you know, enabled vehicles mm-hmm. pulling, right? And so... That is an area that you're probably going to see solar do wet better battery better. It's those cargo style vans oh, yeah, because the they have the room, the they have the, area. the surface yeah. area. It'll, it'll, it's not really going to work for solar on a small car. There's just not enough no. room or batteries and all that. I mean, at, at its best efficiency, I think the Fisker Karma years back, it was enough for the solar panel on the roof just to power like the air conditioning. Right, like it's, it's just not enough surface area to really make well, a not difference. Not time enough a day. There's not enough oh, yeah, efficiency. That's just, there's yeah. and there's probably people freaking out and this thing. You know. <laughs> You need to know a lot more about it. I'm just cursory what I've read. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fine. You are starting to see, like, in the adventure van world, um, yeah. those, like, like, all the systems we put in, we put all lithium-ion. There's no more. No lead acid. You know, yeah, no more lead acid. It's, it's a half of the weight. Oh, yeah. You know, it's more expensive, but it's half oh, yeah. of the weight, and it's, you know, cycles are, you know, through the roof, so many more cycles. Oh, yeah. 
So they're much more efficient. Um, all the systems now integrate and work. I mean, like the individual built vans, like custom van builders, even ones that are bigger than me, but not like, not like a Winnebago. Yeah. That's where your value is because those companies like Winnebago and all the, they're still putting that crappy stuff they put in cheap cardboard RVs are putting in these $200,000 vans yeah. and making money hand over fist. Oh, yeah. Your individual custom van builders like Momentum Vans up in Seattle or Limitless Vans, and there's ones down here too. You're getting the state of art everything. Like in my van, my personal van, I have radiant floor heating. Really? Everything runs awesome. through my main diesel tank. Yeah. And it have radiant floor heat and an air blower. So if it, right now I could turn the van on. Yeah. Like from here, my van's in Washington, our van. Yeah. Wife and cool. I. But, you know, and so I could turn it on. So that way I have it set at 42 degrees all the time. Yeah. So that way my batteries never freeze up. My water tanks are always good. You know, all the touchscreen, I know where all the tanks are, the fill rates, you know, all the elect, you know, electrical systems, the solar systems, all the power that's being generated for me driving with a DC to DC converter. Yep. All of that information is at your fingertips now. I mean, your plumbing is next level PEX, you know, expansion versus you know, the stuff they use and it's just better quality. So oh, yeah. if you're listening and you're looking for a van, please don't buy one for me. Cause I don't make them anymore. I'm too busy <laughs> selling wing, but go to an individual smaller mom, pop cust- shop. mom and pop custom van builder. They'll warranty it better. It'll be better. It'll actually handle it. Cause when you start driving that RV made from a manufacturer on forest mm-hmm. service roads, it'll vibrate your, you know, your fillings loose. <laughs> That's your cabinets falling <laughs> apart. All that crappy material is now just being shaken mm-hmm. loose. Yeah. So a little sidebar there. Just my, it's my thing, you know, just, and, you know, buy from people who know what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. Have a passion. Well, for it. Like we were saying earlier with the IT, I mean, a lot of the innovation we see comes from those mom and pop shops from the startup communities where they can move a little bit faster because they're a little bit more agile. They're not that aircraft carrier, which is huge, impressive, but it takes a little while for them to turn around sometimes. Well, and, and it's kind of off the subject of vans, but real quick on that, you know, you used to have a in my career earlier on, people would always say, well, you know, you're small. You have to prove what you're funding. Are you going to be around? And so it was a negative that you weren't a big company. Yeah. And now, believe it or not, fast forward, it's we're asked quite often, where are you guys in your funding for you to sustain yourself? Not to get bought because we yeah. don't want you being bought by Cisco or HP and then your yeah. t- technology taking a back seat. Yeah. And then now we've we've. When, you know, we've decided to partner with you, but now we're partnering with Cisco and we didn't want to. Yep. No, nothing against Cisco. Oh, yeah, no, choosing it's, just, a name. it's just a different it's environment. Easy, it's easy one to pick yeah. on though. But, <laughs> um, you know, so that, that's very important. Right. So. Oh, absolutely. Right. What else do you like to do on the weekends? You're unplugging down there over there. Oh, in, we're in Texas. Seattle? So we can talk about guns more. Oh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've been to Burning Man a lot. So that's the Burning Man. And I'm a, you know, metal artist and sculptor. I've done that on the side for several years. So that's more of my. Pacific Northwest side. Yeah. So on the, not that there's not a thriving Burning Man community in Dallas and Austin. There is. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, especially Austin. Um, but I, yeah, I, I grew up shooting, you know, yeah. I, like I said, I, we had a deer lease the time I was two years old. So I, grew, really? I grew up around gun safety. It was, yep. you know, we had full access to the 1600 acres. If we wanted to plant, plant rye and oats, we, we did, we, yeah. you know, we built our own deer stands all oh, over cool. the 1600 acres at a three wheeler back when go. they were legal. Oh yeah. Flipped that thing like a hundred <laughs> times. Uh, been up the brand new gun wreck. My dad bought me. Uh, I couldn't bend it back. It was just Uh-oh. Texas, da- you know, Texas dad. He knew instantly. <laughs> um, but you know, we just start, started off with BB guns, you oh, know, yeah. just being red innocent. rider. Yeah. Red rider, yeah. BB Classic. guns. My kids have them too, even in Washington. And you know, and then you know, I graduated up to a 22. Yep. Uh, the rule was with my friends that were there, like at the property, um, we were allowed to shoot BB guns together. But if I shot a 22, that was all by myself. 
and I was not allowed to have any pistols before I was 18 because it's really hard to shoot yourself with a rifle. Possible. Oh, yeah. You need to be tested if you do. A pistol, it's very easy to shoot yourself or others. So True. I just grew up around, you know, guns uh, from a very practical oh, oh, and... What was that first 22? Is it a lever action or a good no, old bolt action? No, or? I still have it. It's a Ross, it was my first gun my dad gave me. It was a Rossi 22 pump. Oh, nice. There you go. So I would yeah. sh- I could shoot short, oh, yeah. uh, long, and long rifle. And yeah. it was great because you go shoot rabbits and birds all day long with those little shorts or quiet. Oh, yeah. You could buy a, a brick of them for like 20 bucks, you know, 15, 20 bucks back then. Oh, gosh. Gotcha. And it would last for I years. I miss those prices. But you go, you go and you know, shoot two, 300 rounds in a weekend. You're, oh, yeah. you know, you're shooting bottle caps at 50 yards, right? And, yeah. And so it's funny. It's my, it's, I have a lot more guns now. And, and I, I actually took that 22 to the range the other day. And I was... It, at 50 yards, open sights, pump action. Yeah. I was just dinging those gongs, just making yep. it sing. And <laughs> my, for some reason, that oh, my eye is just made for that gun. I just yeah. shot it for so many times in my life. It doesn't matter. It's just, I, I can probably shoot that thing better than a 6.5 Creedmoor. I mean, I'm, so, <laughs> I'm kidding, but it's just such a, and I had so much fun. And then, you know, in hunting, uh, you know, I shot my first deer with a, I think it was a lever action, I mean, a 30-30 open sight. Nice. And then there I moved over to like a 243, started shooting that. Uh, and then, of course, in Texas, you can shoot 223, but up in Washington, uh, you have to have a 240 or a Oh, really? You know, longer distances, yeah. bigger animals. Mm-hmm. So the minimum is a 240. So, oh, okay, uh, gotcha. So most people go into 308 or the oh, yeah. 30 out 6. Yeah. So I, I use 6.5 Creedmoor so I can do. Oh, really? I have my own private range. Yeah. That's a dream. Yeah. So okay. I can do, you know, pistol work. And then I have three different sex, uh, 100, 200, and 300. Mm-hmm. Hoping to stretch that out, but so on that I use like a um, six five Creedmoor Sig Cross, yeah, and nice. It's weighs six and a half pounds and it folds up. So right. so it's cause I don't. This might shock some people here, but our hunting we have several hunting seasons in Washington. We're very hunter, yeah, big area. It's actually a lot of guns there. Um, but we have like your bow and art is like a week, you know, your, your bow starts off first, and yeah. then you have muzzle loading. But then modern firearm, depending on your game on your unit, mm-hmm. it's only like a week and a half, two weeks. That's, That's it. it. That's it. Really. And uh, you, you got to get it. But if you want to shoot bear, you can shoot three black bear and you have the whole season to do it. But whitetail or oh, elk, really? you have these smaller windows. Mm-hmm. And so when I was starting to buy a rifle. I was like, I want a rifle. It's like thinking 308. There's a lot more rounds out there. Right. It's very common. But I'm thinking, how much am I going to be actually hunting if I can only hunt for 10 days a year? Right. That's, yeah. I'm going to be doing a lot more precision shooting. And so that's why I went with the Sig Cross because it's an 18 inch barrel. It wasn't yeah. super short, but I could still hunt with it and backpack with it. Mm. But if I wanted to stretch it out to a thousand, you know, I can. Yeah. Right. And so that's, that's been a lot of fun. So I've started to get into long you know, range precision shooting. Uh, I've taken a lot of classes, you know, um, you know, rifle one, two, and three oh, cool. like that. So, you know, AR 15 to oh, yeah. X 95. And I've actually spent one thing I do want to bring up. I didn't mention to you earlier, but I do, uh, the last two years I've worked with uh, the Sentinel Foundation. Right. So last year it was Umphalos, and they've now merged with the Sentinel Group. Mm-hmm. And so my company, the previous company and this one, we team up with a channel partner out of uh, uh, Arizona. I won't mention their name out of respect since you're a channel partner. <laughs> but um, And they uh, teamed up for human trafficking and uh, sex trafficking. Oh, really? And so they, the Umphalos was the the team for the U.S. and Sentinel was more international. And these are all ex-special forces guys. Oh, cool. I can't say their names, yeah, but I'm saying they're all Rangers, SEALs, three-letter agencies, mm-hmm. some of the most humble people you ever met. I mean, including up to the spending time and in, in talking and shooting with you know, recipients of the Navy Cross, yeah. which is no, was only second behind the Medal of Honor. Oh, wow. And this was awarded 
what, less than 10 years ago. Yeah. And so we're talking, I mean, if you saw it on the news and if a president talked about it, it's one of these guys where we're directly involved. Oh, wow. I mean, I was talking to one of them and I was in the Navy and we went to Bosnia twice. And so I was doing this class with these guys and I mentioned Milosevic and one of those guys, he was a, a, a Green Beret. And he's like, yeah, I know. I know him well. I had glass on him for three days. Oh, wow. He never got the order to take him out. He was so mad. He, for three days, he had a scope on Milosevic. Could have taken it. All he needed was the order. Oh, my gosh. And then they said no. Didn't get the order. Drove him crazy. And what we ended up going to war, spending hundreds of millions of dollars in deployments. Oh, you my know, gosh. Mass bombing. Right. When we could have taken the leader out. Yeah. Way before all of that was special forces. So anytime I was deployed anywhere, mm-hmm. we always had people there before us. Oh, yeah. You know, they're, they're there all the time. And so, you know, we were there. We, were, we, we uh, responded to Black Hawk Down, you know, Somalia. Oh, wow. So really? I, was, I was there for that. I was yeah. down for Haiti. We were the first at-sea command. We were the first aircraft carrier. We had um, aircraft carrier to have all five branches. We oh, had really? Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Coast Guard, all special forces on our ship. Took oh. all the jets off, brought attack helicopters on. We had 38-foot scarab um, speedboats for the SEALs. We were painted yeah. gray and blue with rocket launchers. Oh, cool. The Rangers had four-wheelers with blue lights and all these yeah. guns. It was, it was all that it, it had never been done before. You had all the branches on one ship. Really? So it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's intense. Yeah, it's for sure. But, yeah, no, I have a long history of guns. I think, you know, it's, and in Washington, um, kind of the misconception being a liberal area that's not very gun-friendly, it absolutely is. We did have a silly assault weapons ban um, passed this last summer that'll be overturned but before that it's in our state constitution for concealed carry oh really so i know that laws in texas have changed but in you know before you had to have a class you had to take and do a shooting proficiency when in washington you just had to be a state resident so as long as you're a resident you pay your 25 bucks in 30 days you get your concealed carry license oh nice that's it have they they passed constitutional carry yet or no no, no, it's not yet here but it's so easy to get uh, and they're and they don't push against it um, and, and the reason why is because that was part of the state constitution because the West was settled pretty late. Right? Oh, yeah. We were talking the 1900s by the time Washington gets settled. Yeah. And so there was not much force out there. So you needed to have your own way to protect yourself. And so that's right. why it was written in the constitution. That still is not challenged. It'll always be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're fighting some other things, but you know, there's a, there's a very big gun community there, very big hunting community, very big military, kind of like Texas, right? We have a lot of military bases up in Washington. I would have never guessed that I, until I spoke with you. I didn't know you could have NFA weapons. Yeah, I have suppressors. I yeah. have, I have, you know, SBRs. I mean, I don't have machine guns. That's a whole different level oh. of licenses, but well, that's also, yeah. the, that's like the lottery too, with the supply and demand. It's like, or no, with the, but the constraint in the supplies, they had, you know, had, made, had to be manufactured, registered before 1986 in order to get a transferable machine gun. So, like a little Mac 10 is like six grand. Right. It's a, and then your AR 15 full auto transferable is like, you know, like 35 grand, where it should be like. So, like, it's usually yeah. FFLs that <laughs> have that or YouTubers that can, you know, just yeah, the cost exactly. to get it back on view money. But uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, yeah, we've, we have, up until July, we could have everything that you have. Oh, awesome. Like I said, I have all the same things that you yeah. guys have. Uh, I just can't get it today. Yeah. It's also why I get a little bit nervous about flying with my rifles now, because if I fly, yeah, if the American Airlines loses them, they'll give me more money, but I can't go anywhere to buy a new one. No matter yeah. how much money they give me, I can't go physically get one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it's just a state. We're just waiting for it to be overturned. It will. Yeah. Ruin and Heller and all that fun stuff. It's just Absolutely. part of living in America right now and in all different places. There's a lot of things that are amazing about Washington as far yeah. as the the food, the people, the you know, amount of cultural diversity, the technology, the outdoors is just right. insane. It's just 
It's so much more fun shooting with a can too. Like your your, your ears will thank you. It's some and guns are just yeah. miserable well, to shoot like without if suppressor. Even if you're here, like I was talking to a guy, there was a guy who had a uh, suppressor on a shotgun. Yeah. I was, uh, oh, you got the Salvo twelve? I'm not. I'm, it was huge. I'm not yeah. sure what it was, oh, yeah. but it was. It looked like it was pretty cool. But it's like the main reason he got it was to save his dog's ears. Yeah. Not even thinking about that, right? That's a good you point. Know? So, um, but yeah, no suppressors are great for a lot of different reasons. Um, and of course, you need to make sure you have a suppressor cover. Highly recommend Liberty's defense. Oh, yeah. So. They all say they're rated for full auto, and then you start to shoot like one magazine, and they melt off. I, yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> not, not any when anything ever says full auto rated for yeah. anything, it doesn't mean mag dump. Yeah. And that's a common misconception. Usually, it means three round bursts, yeah. pause, and yeah. three round bursts and pause. That you're going to want to, you can do that. Yeah. Because uh, it's not very practical to actually lay down unless you have a full dedicated machine gun. Uh, you know, talking to special forces guys, it's very rare to lay down full auto oh, yeah. unless you're trying to retreat or make people think that you have a lot more force than you really do. Yeah. It's usually more of a situation laying down fire to leave than yeah. to be aggressed. Yeah. Uh, aggressing. Um, Plus but, you'll overheat your gun depending on what you're shooting and how you're shooting yeah, it too. And then you have no place to put that gun, right? So yep. it's, you think, I don't need a suppressor cover until you work on your transitions and that suppressor hits the back of your leg and yep. <laughs> 2,000 degrees, you may think you want one a little bit better. So. I'll make you learn the lesson once. <laughs> once? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it, Shane. Thanks a lot. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time and tuned in. Don't forget to click that like, subscribe, and comment. Everything helps the channel. Don't forget to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, heck, tell your Emmys, tell anyone and everyone. Just stay safe. Have a great day.